continue in First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. We looked at the first two verses last week. This week we will look at verses 3 through 5. Uh, first Peter chapter 1. Peter started off in the first two verses talking about the identity of God's people, the identity of the church. Now he's writing in this letter really focused on living a holy life in an unholy and hostile world. And so he starts off identifying us who we are. We are the elect. We are the chosen of God. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And now he goes on to identify the great hope that we have, the living hope that belongs to us as God's chosen people, as his elect. Before we consider that, though, let us ask the word, to, Lord, to bless. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray your blessing on us now as we read your word and examine your word and ask for you to open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And we pray to lift up our spirits as we know these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll read the first 12 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have had to be grieved by many trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, they're those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels longed to look. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, we start this section off, this book really off, thinking about how 
God's people are those chosen by God, chosen before the foundation of the world, not because of their own works, their own goodness, their own superiority, lest we should boast, but really because of his unmerited grace. And that is what made us, in verse 2, the elect of Christ, the elect of God, God's children. And now in verse 3, we see that this is all according to his great mercy, that we are caused to be born again. Now, no, we really are born again. We are born new. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is the necessary act that has to happen to us for us to be able to go to heaven, to be able to be with God. Now, he continues Nicodemus does not understand, and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now he's saying, Can I do this? Is being born again something that I can cause to happen? Because the only way I could cause it to happen is by climbing back into my mother's womb, and that's ridiculous. And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of spirit, or of flesh, is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, he's saying the Holy Spirit must make you born again. You cannot do it yourself. But Nicodemus is just not grasping what's going on. You know, a man cannot do this himself. In Ephesians 2, we read in verse 1 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If a man is dead... He can do nothing. And that's the meaning here. Man cannot climb back into the mother's womb and be born. That's silly. But man also cannot take the Holy Spirit and bind it into his heart. Uh, man is dead, and he's dead in sin. In Romans 8, 6-9, Paul makes this point about this, that those who have set their mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, Nicodemus was a man, just as any other human being on the face of the earth. And until God had changed him, he was dead in sin and he was hostile to God. And we are all in that situation. That until God takes the first step, we are enemies. We cannot please him. We do not want to please him. We are dead in our sin. He continues on in verse 9 of Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so this necessity is linked. Being born again, born of the Spirit, the Spirit must be in us for us to be saved. Do we put the Spirit in ourselves? No, we are dead. How does a dead man receive the Spirit of God? Well, continuing in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 5 through 10, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. Grace is an unmerited gift. God has chosen to give life to some people. Not to all men, but to those who have been saved. Those who are already saved, God has put their spirit in them. That is how they are saved. He has made them alive, spiritually. Verse 6, continuing, And he raised him up and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Even our faith is the gift of God. A dead man cannot believe. A dead man is at enmity, at hatred with God. And so he has received this gift from God, not of work so that no one can boast. If we could say, I did it, we would be boasting. He's saying, no, you can't boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is God who has put the Spirit in us. It is God who has caused us to be saved. It is God who has given us the faith we need. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, not by ourselves, but by God. God has caused us to be born again. Now, the grammar here in the passage is really difficult in the Greek, but the idea is that God did the work. It's, not, it's his work of making us born again, uh, which is translated in the ESV, caused us to be born again. It's a grammatical construction that doesn't exist in English, so it's complicated to make English out of. But the idea is, you know, we're dead in our sin. We are unable to save ourselves. It is God who causes us to be born again, who does the work for us, who puts his spirit in us. Right? That's Ezekiel 36. We've read this verse before, 36, 25 through 27. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. And you'll be clean from your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is the Old Testament promise that Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born again. You must have the Spirit in you. And God is the one who puts the Spirit in you. I will put. We don't take it for ourselves. God does that for us. He causes us to have his Spirit, that we might be born again. And he does that for a reason, that we might obey him. Right? We might be careful to obey him. And the idea being that we have been transferred now from the world of the flesh to the world of the spirit, to the rule of the spirit from the rule of the flesh. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, Paul puts it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been taken out of that dead, worthless life We've had a spirit of God put in us. 
We've had a new heart put in us. We are a new creation now in Christ. That is what he means when he says we have been born again. Born again is the work of the Lord. Peter will talk about this again later in the chapter. I don't want to talk about it now. But he says we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We have no worries about that. But this is what God has done. But note what it says in verse 3 of our passage. He has caused us to be born again, but it is according to his great mercy. Now, I remember somebody explaining how to do evangelism to me shortly after I became a Christian. They said, you tell the person that God has a vote for where you will go, Satan has a vote for where you will go, and you have a vote. God always votes for you to go to heaven, Satan always votes for me to go to hell, and you have the deciding vote. Um, wrong on many levels. The idea that mere man is equal to God, or Satan is even equal to God, is just wicked. Uh, God is the one who plays the active role. It is his mercy, and he is the one who gives us a new heart, gives us his spirit, causes us to be born again. God being rich in his mercy, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. His rich mercies, his great mercy, is what caused him to love the unlovable. You know, we are not saved because God looked at us and says, you know, out of all the people I see, that one is better and the most lovable and the most desirable and going to do the most for me, and therefore I want him on my team. No, he looked at men who were dead in their trespasses and sin, who were wicked, who were depraved. He looked at our entire life and knew all the sins we would commit after becoming a Christian. And he chose to have mercy on us and to give us his great love. And we can trust in that mercy. Notice how he starts off the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He is praising God for what he is about to say, that God is the one who saved us. God chose to love us, chose to show us mercy, chose to have us born again, to give us his spirit. Because it doesn't depend on us. Because we're weak, incapable, inadequate. But it depends upon God, who is omnipotent. We can therefore rejoice greatly that he has the power to back up what he says, and he has the desire for us. His desire for us is, of course, that we would be holy that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. And for that end, it goes on to say that we, that God's chosen, that God's elect, have been born again to a living hope. Now some think the living hope there is the hope of life, of eternal life. But I I tend to think it's much more than that. This living hope that he's talking about is a hope that itself is alive as opposed to a dead hope. What do I mean by that? Well, people who trust in their wealth, who trust in their strength, who trust in their wisdom, their intellect, their power, the sacrifices they have made, 
their righteousness, their holiness, their works. They have a dead hope. Now, Peter was a Jew. He knew very well the culture that Jesus came into, the corrupt Judaism that taught that by doing these things, you have a checklist and you, you check enough things off, God has to accept you. And your sins are not important if, you, if you know, they're weighed in the balance. But that is a dead hope. Why is it dead? Well, it's not about a balance. If you're a little better than you are bad, then you're okay. What does God require? Holiness, perfect holiness. You know, Psalm 49, he touches upon this. Verses 5 through 9. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another and give to God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he would live forever and never see the pit. You know, the payment for even the smallest of our sins can never suffice is what God is telling us it is never enough in Hebrews we read about the Old Testament law chapter 10 verse 11 it said the priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins it was not the sacrifice that took away sins but they pointed to the Christ sacrifice his perfect sacrifice and the author of Hebrews in six one tells us that we should leave the he wants to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. The two are in opposition. The one who thinks somehow they can do it cannot trust in God to do it all for them, cannot trust in Christ to do it all for them. Our faith is not dead like that, but living. It is a living faith and a living hope. A hope that's fixed on the thing that can save us. Uh, Back to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, it points out that the the blood of goats and bulls sprinkled on the defiled portion with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is therefore the mediator of a new covenant, and so those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. <coughs> the point being that we have this living hope, not a dead hope. Our trust is not in the works that we do and in ourself, because that is a dead hope, because we are dead. We are not perfect. We are not able to meet God's requirement. And we are born again into a living hope. And if you look at what it says, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say the resurrection and not the death of Christ? Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. 
For I delivered to you what is of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Yeah. He paid for our sins in his death. Why then is it talking about his resurrection as being where our living hope comes from? Well, it's a little complicated, but straightforward. We read in Romans 4, 21 through 25, talking about Abraham, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The words counted to him not for his sake only, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believed in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our transgressions and raised for our justification. What is this talk about his being raised? Well, how long is it going to take us to pay for our sins? We read the psalm a little earlier, it never suffices. How long do we need to remain in prison? How long do we need to remain in hell? Matthew 5.25, Jesus is talking about this, and he, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We would be in hell until everything was paid, and the payment is never enough. So that's where Jesus' resurrection comes in. Jesus paid it all. How do we know he paid it all? Well, when it was finished, hell and death no longer had dominion over him. The full price was paid. He didn't go to hell. But it says death lost its power because the price was paid and he raised. And the fact that he raised from the dead gives us the assurance that while all our sins were placed upon him and he paid for them on the cross with his blood, we know confidently that he paid it all because he was raised from the dead. Death had no more power over him. Romans 6, 8 through 10. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. How do we know his payment was enough? How do we know we don't need to add a little bit more? Right? That's one of the popular teachings, right? Jesus paid it all, and we just need to pay a little more. And as long as we pay that, we're good. No, we can never pay. And we know that when he was risen from the dead, the death had no dominion over him because the sins were all paid for. He was released from prison, from death. And that's a great matter of hope. We don't have to worry about, have I done enough to get to heaven? Have I been good enough? Is the sin I committed keeping me from heaven? Now, there's one of the teachings of the Roman Catholic religion that, you know, if you sin and then you die, so for certain sins, that you can't be saved because you haven't repented of them and paid for them in the church. Now, we don't have to worry about that fear. I remember hearing of a mobster who went to, uh, went to the priest and asked him how much he had to pay. He had to commit murder, and he was most likely going to die in the process. 
you know, that the enemy would kill him in a mob battle. And so he asked the priest, and the priest assigned an amount of money to donate to guarantee that his soul would be saved. Uh, that's, that's not the Bible's teaching. When Jesus raised from the dead, it was all paid, and we can be confident in that. We don't have to worry about dying in our sin unless, of course, we have never received Christ. We are God's chosen. We are God's elect. We have been saved to this living hope. As Christ lives, so will we. And we have been saved, we have been born again to an inheritance. Now, I have an inheritance from my father. I always assumed my whole life there would be zero coming from him. He died two years ago. Uh, Apparently, he owed a lot of money on his house and his car, but he had a little bit left over. And that's going to come to us. Except his wife has Alzheimer's. And it's costing a fortune to keep her in a nursing home. And all of that money should be gone soon. (laughs) And so there will be no inheritance, which is what I expected from him. And sadly, my children are not going to get a financial inheritance from me. The only thing I can give them is the knowledge that I will be in heaven, which, unfortunately, my own father could not give me. But we have an inheritance. It's described in verse 4 as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What a joyful inheritance. You know, this is amplifying the reason why we praise God. Not only did he elect us to salvation and cause us to be born again, but he's prepared a gift for us, a gift, an inheritance for us. And that starts really with our home. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. You know, we have a home. It is not of this world. The one in this world they may take away from us. We may lose due to health, not being able to pay for it anymore, due to persecution. But the one in heaven is eternal. And we're warned by Jesus back in Matthew 6. Remember 19 through 20, Don? Don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But think about it. That's not only where we're putting our treasure through our good works, but it's also where the inheritance God has prepared for us is being stored. It's being stored there, and that's important. It's imperishable, undefiled. It's, there's no corruption in it. It can't be corrupted by anything. You know, the things we have on this world... You ever uh, put something in a drawer and think, oh, I'll, I'll save that and I'll keep it? Then one day you got to open it and it's all rusty and it's unusable. Uh, I remember my uncle, he said, in, in storage was a tea set. A, 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 uh, it, it was a silver tea set, silver-plated tea set, very valuable. When they brought it out of storage... After my grandmother died, they realized the plating had all peeled off because of the way it was stored. And it was virtually worthless. But he paid to have it replated. 
you know, that inheritance was his and he wanted it, but it had corroded and corrupted. The things stored for us in heaven will not corrode. They will be in as good a shape as ever. And they're pure, free from any defilement, free from any sin. You know, the things we inherit in this world and the things we have in this world, they're all tainted by sin. And they can all bring up in us the desires of sin. Desire for more. And who has ever had enough? Yeah, we always want just a little more. They they bring up the, the corruption in our nature, but what's there is pure and holy and perfect. It's free from defilement. It's free from sin. It's waiting for us, and it does not fade away. Right? Unfading. I remember going through some of my grandmother's things once, and you know, you, you pull out the wedding dress, and it's yellowed and faded, and uh, it's not something you would want your wife to wear to the wedding anymore because it's old. But the things in heaven, they won't fade. It's kept for us in heaven, and that is even more important than all the other things because in heaven it is safe. It is out of the reach of cheats and thieves. It is out of reach of corruption and decay. It cannot be wasted foolishly by us. You know, think of the uh, prodigal son. He got his inheritance and what happened to it? He squandered it all in foolishness. We don't have to worry about that with our inheritance because God is keeping it for us in heaven. It's under his charge. It's safe and it's holy, and it's not to be worried about anymore. We have that promise. You know, as we look at how are we living as holy people chosen by God, strangers and pilgrims in a world that hates us, in a world that's full of corruption and full of sin, well, I have an inheritance, and nothing that happens to me in this world is taking that away. Nothing that happens in this world is going to corrupt it or lessen it or destroy it. It is with God in heaven. We have that hope. And that really is part of our living hope, that inheritance. And note, down in verse 5, we, God's chosen, God's elect, are being kept by the power of God. Now, the fear of losing our salvation is common in many people. They don't know. They don't have any assurance. They don't have that hope that God wants us to have, that Peter is talking about. They don't have that living hope because they believe they can lose it, because they believe it depends upon their power and their skill and their righteousness and not upon God. Now, Peter here is saying the same thing Jesus taught. In John chapter 6, we looked at this passage months ago. Uh, 37 through 40. All the Father who gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. They have been kept by God. For I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. We are kept by God. But I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and that I will raise him on the last day. 
Now, Peter is saying we are kept by God. We do not need that fear of, oh, he loves me, he loves me not. God's commitment is perfect and pure. Paul talks about much of the same thing in 2 Timothy 1.12. Talking about his persecutions and his imprisonment and his impending death. He said, which is why I suffer as I do for Christ. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard it until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul was not concerned about his salvation, that they could take it away in prison, that by killing him in a certain way, he could lose it. No, he knew that God had chosen to love him, that God had chosen to cause him to be born again, that God had given him an inheritance, that God in his power would guard his faith to the very end. Now, it can be difficult for us when we're facing trial after trial after trial to put our hope in an eternal heavenly reward and inheritance because we're suffering now. We're suffering many times and in much despair sometimes. And we wonder, will we ever make it to heaven? But we should know that our inheritance is safe in heaven, that God is waiting with our Savior in heaven, that he will keep us by his omnipotent power until we get there. Now this promise is not to everyone. Not to all men. It is not even to all who profess Christ. But it is to those God has chosen. Those who are his elect. His elect exiles of the dispersion. This is important for us to remember. You know, people trash the, the faith of the Bible saying that, oh, but if you believe that God has kept you, will keep you forever, then you can go do whatever you want. You know, once saved, always saved, so I don't have to worry about sin if I believe what you believe, what the Bible says, what Peter says. What Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Matthew seven twenty and following. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who has fruit. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, there are those in the church who think they're doing well, but they don't produce fruit. They don't live the life for God. They may be trusting in the promises that don't apply to them because they don't have the faith that God requires, that they haven't been born again, that God hasn't put their spirit in them, and they don't see that. They see themselves as good, as acceptable. You know, Peter speaks of this later in the chapter when he says, in verse 22 and 23, having, been, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. In other words, the result of our being born again is that pure brotherly love, that purification of our souls, that holiness of life, that new life. <coughs> I think we talked about this at length in Philippians 
Back in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he said, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to do, according to God's good pleasure. If you remember our discussion about that passage, it's the same as here. Now, these great promises are for God's people. How do you know if you're one of God's people? Well, I say I am. No, because you have that new life. The reality is God has put his spirit in you, but people can't really tell that. They don't know. If they haven't experienced it, they may think they have and not know. So how do you know? By their fruits. Do you know them? By our fruits, we know ourselves. If we're living a new life in Christ... If we're loving him, if we're loving the brothers, right? if, you haven't, if you don't love your brother, how can you love God who you haven't seen? If we love our brothers and we love God, then we have hope that we are the elect, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, to be loved by him, to be called by him, to be kept by him to the very end. As Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This introductory part is the beginning of that great hope that gives us the strength to live a holy life in an unholy world, to live as strangers and pilgrims amongst those who want us dead. We can live that holy life because we have that living hope that Christ has really paid for our sins, that he has risen from the dead, that sin no longer will be counted against us and that we have a place in heaven. And we are called to live that holy life, and we should, therefore, change our hearts and live it for his kingdom, for his glory, as strangers and pilgrims, but as you say, as elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's what his whole book is going to be about, primarily living that life before God in this unholy world. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you did send your Son to die for our sins and that you raised him again, showing that the sins were indeed fully and completely and utterly paid for, that we are justified completely. And we thank you, Lord, for the living hope that that gives us, that we know as he lives, so shall we. We pray that you would give us the strength we need to face our struggles every day, struggles with the world, the struggles with the flesh, the struggles with the devil, the struggles that no one ever knows about but you. Pray that our hope would be fixed on you, our joy would come from you, and that we would persevere in our faith in all that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.